0: planning is strong but it needs to be strong with creative creative is strong but it needs to be strong with client service it's not pulling in the opposite direction so again you know you're looking for creatives to go and present work to clients with the client service person and the strategy person there so it's about that collective responsibility
1: what's up and welcome to Sweathead with my poll out i have sarah tate here ceo and head of strategy strategy boss extraordinaire from London. Sarah was most recently CEO of TBWA in London and had a very long stint as strategy director and then managing director at Mother. Almost a decade of doing those kinds of roles, right Sarah? Pretty amazing. Today we're going to talk about CEO 101. Welcome.
0: Oh, thank you for having me and thank you for uh, coming across the Atlantic to talk to me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> pleasure, pleasure. Virtually, of course. Uh, so you were most recently CEO of TBWA and we actually caught up, must have been months before you took that role, just
0: to yeah. talk
1: about our, our futures, right? Why take that role?
0: I asked myself that question, Mark. So like most decisions I make, it was a sort of mix of the personal and the professional. I'd been at Mother for 10 years and I just finished having my second baby in quite quick succession. And I thought... It was a good time to go i just turned 40 and then when i met you i was really exploring what i would do next because i'd never been a mom of two tiny kids before and i've never been afraid of making a little bit of a sideways leap in terms of discipline so i went from strategy to new business from new business to md and i thought you know what am i going to do and i also at the time the obvious next step for me was to become a ceo And I actually felt like it wasn't for me. And it's interesting to sort of when I talk to women who are coming up in the industry or young men coming up, I think I had some preconceptions around it. I felt that, first of all, I hadn't met any female CEOs, I'm going to say, really. And those that I had, I didn't feel I was very like them. And I wanted to have a strong home life and a strong work life. So I sort of discounted it. I thought, you know, it's not for me. And then after a little break of a few months, and I went into Lucky Generals to kind of help them out, the role at TBW came up, TBWA, after they acquired Lucky Generals. And I just felt ready. I just thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and do it and see what happens. I think sometimes a break is good because you feel a bit of renewed energy, you know, to kind of smash the next thing. So so that was what happened. So seven months after I left mother and I haven't gone, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I found myself sitting in the CEO seat of an agency that uh, it's no secret had not been in a great place for about 10 years. So it was a turnaround job. So not not only was it my first (laughs) CEO job, my first network job, and I had my kids were zero and one. It was a turnaround job, but I loved it. It was great.
1: Okay. You mentioned that it was an obvious next step. Why was it an obvious next step?
0: Good question. Um, because I effectively moved from strategy into general management, being MD. And then the next step in that sort of career laddering within that on that ladder is from MD to CEO. Often, I didn't have the urge to go back to strategy and be a CSO. I always thought I was an okay strategist, but like, I wasn't the best. I don't like uncertainty as much, you know, strategists love questions and, you know, things never quite being clear. And I would always rather they're a little bit more clear. So yeah, so it just seemed like the obvious next thing. I'd never wanted to start an agency, just didn't appeal to me. And so if I was to stay in the industry in an employed fashion, that was a kind of, it was the next expected thing to do.
1: Okay. And then when you talk about not meeting that many female CEOs, and then not necessarily relating to or seeing yourself in the female CEOs that you met. Talk to me a bit more about that. What's that all about, Sarah?
0: Yeah, what is that all about? Um, I I think I, I'd never worked under a female CEO. All of the partners at Mother, all five of them, are were, still are, men. I'd been at BBH, and there'd been John Bartle, John Nigel Bogle, and John Hegarty you know i I'd never had any direct experience to sort of model, and also it wasn't just about being a female and what that management style or leadership style would look like as a woman, which can be I do believe can be diverse from men. It was also most of the guys I worked into their wives didn't work, let's be honest, they were kind of relatively rich, they'd made good money at mother, and their wives didn't work and so I remember going back on one of the partners, love in a very lovely way, saying to me you know." it's great. You know, I love to have you back at work. And I, he said, you know, after he went back after his first child, he felt really extra committed to work because, you know, his wife was at home and he wanted to kind of provide. And I was like, I'm the wife. You know, my husband goes out to work full time. Like I'm your wife and I'm here. (laughs) So yeah, I, I also wanted to make sure that like my husband and my kids are super important to me right I I believe that you need to be happy in all areas of your life to be secure and fulfilled in your job for me personally so I wanted to balance the two things
1: so taking the turnaround job at at TBWA what were the goals of the turnaround you know like when you when you accepted that job when you were talking about accepting that job how did you know when the turnaround would be turned around
0: (laughs) Um, I don't think a turnaround is ever turned around in this sort of VUCA agency climate that we're in where everything's really volatile. But I guess we, the network, it's part of Omnicom, which is an amazing network to be part of. They had some goals and we also had some goals. I went in with two partners, my amazing CSO, Anna Voigt, and my wonderful CCO, Andy Jex, who I'd worked with before. And we had a little idea between ourselves. And I think it fell into four buckets in my mind. One was clearly financial. So the agency had not been very profitable for about 10 years. And to have a business that can invest and make choices, you know, you need to you need to make money, as well as being part of a network, you need to make money. So financial security and doing well financially was um, was important. But we were never really put under that much pressure for that, to be honest, because the network also wanted, and we really wanted, was for TBWA London to, once again, be more of a jewel in the crown of the TBWA network. So London agencies just don't make the money that, that you make compared to a New York agency. You know, they've got New York, they've got LA, so they weren't looking for us to sort of print cash. What they were looking for was for us to be creatively appealing and reputationally attractive. To clients who were based in Europe, who were looking, you know, maybe they wanted an agency on both sides of the, of the Atlantic, and they really wanted London to sort of have a great reputation for being somewhere that was that was on the up. So part of that was obviously creative work for us, and part of it was what I sort of describe as momentum. So you know, a feel that there was progress, it was moving, it was a place that talent wanted, talent wanted to come and join. And then the fourth thing I think I took for granted, but it became more obvious to me that I felt it was important. And actually, that's now where I'll probably focus the next stage of my career was what it was like as a place to work. So I had been lucky enough to been at Mother for 10 years and at BBH when it was independent. And I'd always taken for granted that you worked in these places with a strong culture. What does that mean? It means you enjoy going in, you're stimulated by the people you work with, you're not worrying about the politics, you can do your best work, you know, that it just brings you a great experience. And with that, we now know comes psychological safety. And there's a lot of things that need to be put in place for that to happen. And I'd always taken that for granted. So when I went into TVWA, same as Anna and Andy had come from Mother, we had an idea of what good felt like. It was, I think, about 100 people when we got there, and probably double in size by the time we left. And we were like, I know what good feels like at 200. I know what it's like to walk into an agency and be like, yes, I'm glad to be in today. You know, I'm going to do some cool stuff. I'm challenged. I, I'm stimulated. I, I'm i glad I'm giving my time, particularly for younger people who are spending some of the formative years of their career. You know, you want them to be like, great, I'm glad I invested three, four years in this place. And I knew what that felt like. And I've been offered other jobs or spoken to about other jobs a much bigger agencies, like 550 people. And I just thought, I don't know what good feels like at 550 people. Like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what that agency is like to walk into and work in because I'd never worked in a place like that. So that cultural mm-hmm. part of it was important. And I realized became increasingly important to make the other three things happen.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. What is a CEO?
0: Hmm, Many different things. Ultimately you have some practical responsibilities, and then you have some much more sort of philosophical responsibilities. So practically, the financial buck stops with you. And as a network CEO, that is the biggest thing. At the end of the day, the numbers are your numbers, and that's important. And you are the place that all problems float up to Really, the big smelly ones, you know, you are the last port of call for the big issues, and you hope that people raise them to you before they become big issues. You are also the person who sets the strategic direction of the business. Now, I always did that in consultation and partnership with my leadership team and Anna and Andy, but ultimately, having a vision for where the agency the business needs to go to grow to flourish to thrive succeed that isn't just keeping on doing business as usual which as we all know in our industry makes you outdated pretty quickly that sits with you so you do need to have this kind of practical element the business element but also setting the vision for the agency but there's another big part of it which is whether you know it or not you set the tone for a large proportion of the behavior you set standards, you set the cultural barometer for how people should treat each other, for how people should treat clients, for creating an environment that has some degree of psychological safety or a culture whereby people know how to behave when you're not in the room or when management isn't in the room. And that is very much like raising children. I don't mean star for children. I mean, children are watching you even when you're not doing a thing. So as a leader, People watch you all the time. So if you're running around stressed like a headless chicken for 90% of the day and then being calm and relaxed for 10%, they're getting the 90%. If you tell people to be self-sufficient and deal with problems and yet you swoop in all the time and chastise them for getting things wrong, people are not going to try and solve problems. How you speak tonally to people above you and below you and, and how you speak to clients People look to you for that, that you set a tone, and you see this in businesses. People will model the behavior of the people more senior than them because that's what's being acceptable and standards that are acceptable. And that was one of the biggest learnings for me.
1: Okay, With, with vision, you know, how much influence does a local CEO really have in an agency that's been around for a long time, that's sitting in a holding company where there's often a very small group of people really trying to set the vision for the holding company and mm. I've, I feel in the past decade or two, maybe there's like way less autonomy at that local level. Like how, how much influence did you really have specifically about the strategic direction and the vision for TPWA?
0: It's not the same across all networks. So I wouldn't join another network other than Omnicom. No disrespect to them, but Omnicom is very well known for it is not centrally controlled. It's very centrally hands-off. So it respects agency brands and it invests in agency brands. That's why even TBWA owns both Lucky Generals and TBWA and they didn't merge them. They kept the brands. It's why they own 101 and TBWA in Netherlands and they don't merge them. They have TBWA and 101 and Lucky's in North America. So they value and invest in the brands themselves and therefore you, you have some autonomy to do stuff. It also depends on, let's be honest, who my boss is, who your network CEO is. And mine is an incredible guy called Troy Rohan and he's still an incredible guy. He was my boss. And I sort of wish I'd worked for him before because I learned so much from him just by osmosis and by watching him. And he had a very clear vision for the re-energizing of TBWA globally which he came on board to do and he'd been there nearly five years and what he did bring us was a massive injection of like come on let's lean in we can do this of kind of energy and drive and commitment and absolute belief in us and he also invested really heavily in a lot of new CEOs the vast majority of whom in the main offices were female LA was female New York's female as female China and he he wanted that talent to do brilliantly And he gave us a big, long runway. So as long as we were kind of hitting the numbers, and even then we weren't really, as a turnaround agency, we weren't really held to that. We did have a lot of space. I think there are also, it depends what you're looking for as well. There's strategic advantages in being part of a network and not. So the advantage of being an indie, having been a mother, is do whatever you want. Go whichever direction you want in. The disadvantage is if you want to invest in it, you've got to find the money yourself. So if mother wants to build CX or something else, well, great, they've got to invest in it themselves. You don't have any of the big foundations or big central investment. If you're in publicis, they are very centrally controlled and they invest huge amounts in big data platforms and big database transformations, which the offices get to have. <laughs> so they get huge amounts of innovation given them, but they also need to therefore line up with the global strategy. Omnicom somewhere in the middle, I felt that TBWA, what I was given was a massive sandbox of like New York do this Helsinki do this if you want this if you want this here's how you learn what these offices have done and someone will come over and help you build it but if you don't want to do that and you want to pick something else then go ahead so for me it was a really good balance of I was like a kid in the sweet shop I got all these global things which I'd never had at mother we had to do everything under our own steam but none of it was really forced upon us and I certainly do believe that it's very hard for indie agencies to scale i think they do need they end up staying in quite a niche which mother's 25 years old you don't necessarily want to be niche the whole time simply because it's quite hard to keep up with the pace of innovation it's quite hard to invest in the stuff we need to invest in now you you need kind of a lot of backing to do it
1: okay and then how did you articulate what the vision was going to be like what was the vision what was the strategic direction probably two separate things and maybe they're several pages each but how did you articulate these things
0: They were actually one slide and our vision stayed the same, but the exact way in which it was articulated year on year kind of slightly changed because we we changed course. So the first year we articulated it to the guys as getting back to focusing on the work because it had become, you know, an agency that did a lot of localization. They had some great talent there, but the focus wasn't necessarily on the work. And you know that as soon as you start to raise the bar of the work, you win more clients, you get more money, you attract more talent. So we said it was all about the work and we had three pillars. And one was about being disruptive. Disruption is the DNA of TBWA, and it's not a formula. It's a, it's a philosophy. It's about strategically and creatively trying to do things the way they haven't always been done before. And so we really tried to bring disruption back in. So we said it's about being disruptive, both in your behavior and in the ambition. We said it's about being one crew. The next year, we'd made quite a lot of progress on that. So disruption was still at the heart of it. But what we said was we needed to make that come alive across loads of different places. So we the first year we weren't such a legacy TV agency actually, and we had quite a lot of digital. We did some good projects for Adidas, so we said to people, you know, creatively uh, and culturally, this needs to be more. We used to call them banter ideas, you know, like just things that can enter culture a bit more. Invested in internal production, and we said culturally, culturally one crew is a baseline. Right, And one, one crew sort of behaving in a collective way was written into people's appraisals. And we, we grew that out and we extended it and we said it's about collective spirit. And again, it was really clear. So if someone asks you for help, you give it. And it was also about encouraging people to be more entrepreneurial. So in a kind of true pirate fashion, like taking risks a little more. And again, all of these things were written into appraisals. And then by the third year, we fell back on those values and that direction really hard. So we were like, we're the disruption company, right? I mean, disruptions, So <laughs> And the collective spirit really served us well. It became very clear what collective behavior looked like and what one crew behavior looked like in a pandemic. And it meant that we were able to take decisions, be really transparent with the agency about what was best for them, and sacrifices we had to make, because everyone knew that we were thinking what's best for the collective. And so those values just really kind of underpinned the whole the whole time we went through.
1: Right, right. And so it it sounds like so the appraisal document was a key place where the desired behaviours were documented and uh, and kind of led to frequent discussions but how did you turn the desire for disruptive behavior into like how did you know it was happening was that just in appraisals was did you measure it you know how did you turn that desire into something more concrete
0: so um rather than start by measuring we started by trying to create the environment to allow it to happen and actually Being able to be disruptive and thinking collectively are connected, right? Because it's all about psychological safety. You need to feel the people around you are going to support you and have your back and they're not out for themselves in order to be able to have the bravery to step forward and be like, "Mm, I think we can do this differently. It's not all about work. It might be about someone saying, I don't think this contact reporting system works on our account. You know, I've got an idea for a better one. It's not always about doing some wacky, crazy work. In fact, often it's not. It's about challenging the way that things are done and finding a better way of doing it. So um, we put in a completely different way of working used to be quite baton passing as lots of agencies are and my amazing MD and COO redesigned it around those values and it became a trio triumvirate based we used to call it so every project had a triumvirate who were jointly responsible for the delivery of great work on time on budget etc and that was a strategist a creative and a client service person but they weren't always the same people so on a smaller account you know a smaller project you might have, you know, a CD, but then a mid-weight strategist. You might have a business director. So it wasn't always the same. Just the three most senior people in the room. So it bound some collective. Uh, spirit together process can be a liberating thing for creativity rather than a a stricture so we basically designed a process which was you've got beats where everything needs to go back through those three so they make collective decisions together and it also meant that people felt more able to just kind of have it out with each other and have a conversation if the three of you are responsible for this whole project it goes off gets presented to client you get feedback from teams and it always comes back to that core then it just kind of engendered a more confident way of working between those groups. It also gave responsibility to people who hadn't necessarily had it before. So articulating the behaviours, bedding them into appraisals, modelling them. Me, Anna and Andy always made decisions together. Always, always, always. Uh, We always came together for the big stuff. We always talked to the agency together for the big stuff. But also building in ways of working and operations which encouraged a collective spirit, which in turn encouraged people to be a little bit braver and and disrupt where they could.
1: If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit Sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad. A gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. I think that what you're describing for companies that are struggling to do more creative work or better work, or even to kind of get account planning or strategy to really click, especially companies new to it. The key point that I I would sort of highlight with what you said is like you, you as a, a leadership team, you're working out what you want to achieve and then you're, embedding it so it's default and from what i understand i think tbwa globally tracks like account planning hours and i think there's some i heard it was like 12 percent when i interviewed rob schwartz who's running the i don't know he's got some big title in, in new york now but i think there's like a particular number that uh troy measures mm. or looks for right but it's embedded and it's not like strategists and account planners having to run around the building trying to get onto projects and then getting onto them but being kicked off them or helping to win a pitch and the account planners don't make money from the pitch or they're The discipline of account planning—it's built in, right? That's just the default way that you worked.
0: It's totally built in. I mean, I think in London, planning is built in. Like, it's just sort of not really heard of that you don't have a strong body of planners, and that that percentage that you're talking about is—it's really to encourage other markets to hire a lot of planners. Because Troy's like, planners are amazing. If you have planners, your business will do better. So, in in markets like the UK. We have way more than that on the payroll just to encourage other markets that are more client service led to have it. So I think the key thing in agencies that I've worked in in the UK is to bind the three disciplines, the core three disciplines together. So planning is strong, but it needs to be strong with creative. Creative is strong, but it needs to be strong with client service. It's not pulling in the opposite direction. So again, you know, you're looking for creatives to go and present work to clients with the client service person and the strategy person there. So it's about that collective responsibility and you just avoid all the pinging around in between, but yeah, it needs to be embedded. And I think it was sort of obvious to us because particularly Andy and I had always worked that way, but we did realize that. We needed to always draw attention to it. You need to constantly kind of draw attention. You need to model it. You need to reward it in order to make sure it, it stays embedded and it flourishes.
1: I love it. I love it. Uh, did you come to any realizations about the role of the CEO that surprised you while you were a CEO?
0: Hmm. Many, many of them too late, Mark. I mean, you know, now I think, oh, I do a great job as a CEO now, maybe I'll go and do it again. Um, It taught me personally, absolute accountability. So as you come up through the ranks, there's always someone. There's always someone you can point to as having thwarted your ambition or ruined your work or that blimming client, that client service person, that Mr. X, Mrs. Y. And a lot of that time, that's just a foil for something. When you become the CEO, you come across a problem and you, well, you know, there's the thing in the and you're like, no Sarah if you don't like the thing or the x or the y it's your responsibility to change it and so suddenly you really realize what accountability is and how much probably all the way through my career if I'd really looked at it I could have taken the opportunity to take within my control and it really makes you recognize your own agency for for better or worse and that was an amazing lesson which you know it would have been amazing if I'd learned when I was 20 cuz it would have been incredible the other thing I learned, and I know this doesn't sound like it's about the technical role of the CEO, but hard skills are, you know, less than half the job, I think. It also makes you realize that what you know and how good you are and your wonderful advice isn't as helpful as you think it is. That your job is to bring the best out in other people, which I know sounds really like blah, 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 blah. But just think about it practically. I can go around and I can input into, what, 20 people a day? What about the other 180 that are there? They need to be doing a brilliant job, knowing what they're doing, motivated to do it well, learning, developing, without me going and tapping on their shoulder and saying, oh, you can move that box over here. And of course, there are processes where you people sit down with you and they share their work with you. But the thing you can do to supercharge your company most is to make everyone kind of step into being as good as they can be. And so I have an amazing coach. I had an amazing coach. I've had, I've had two coaches actually concurrently. And they would always say to me, you know, if someone comes to you and you don't know the answer to the problem, which let's be honest, a lot of the time you don't because the business is changing. Don't try and step in and say, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Say, what would you do? What would just ask, what would you do? And that immediately, first of all, makes that person realize that they have agency in this situation and actually allows you to collectively problem solve together. And they almost certainly know more about the topic, the issue, the problem than you do. And it encourages you to sort of coach them to get that out. And it also is the gift of not only getting to a better solution, but next time, then thinking, hang on a minute, I pretty much solved that last time. I'm going to solve it this time. And that took some time to bed in for me because when you start a new job, you're so keen to sort of show what you know and tell people what you know and how they should do it. And then you realize that that's fine, but it gets old pretty quick.
1: Help me understand the way you interacted with the management team. Like what kind of cadence did you maintain with maybe structured meetings, one-on-ones, off-sites, et cetera? How, how did the management team come together?
0: Firstly, that was always evolving. It needed to evolve. And a mistake I made in, our, in my second year, I think, was we designed it and then we kept it as it was. And after the second year, the management team told me, this doesn't really work for us anymore. And you're like, okay, hey, yeah, let's redesign it. So there's no one size fits all, you know, how it looks during a crisis versus when you're growing versus when you're shrinking is it needs to be different. But broadly speaking, I had my C-suite, Anna and Andy, and we all sat next to each other or behind each other. And so that was a regular cadence all the time. And then my MD and my CFO were also a really core part of that team. And we would talk continually, but we would also carve out an hour a week just to sit down and throw stuff around we then had a broader management team, which included sort of heads of and different disciplines like my COO. And we would get together either monthly or sometimes we moved it to six weekly. And we would spend an hour and a half talking about, it was based on two things. One, we would track against the vision and the plan that we'd laid down. And then we would people would bring stuff and we'd try and solve them together. What I learned about that over time was that those things work, work much better. They always say a good team is always in process. You know, what you design needs to change. And the way that you redesign is not to redesign it yourself, is to ask the team. So at the end of my second year, when they were like, mm, this isn't really working for us. Some of them were like, this isn't a good use of our time. It's not really solving our problems. I was like, oh, right. Okay, I'll go away and redesign it. And I thought, no, Sarah, that's like the literally the opposite of what you should do. Have you learned nothing? And so I went back and we said, what do we want this forum to be? How, do, how can we help each other within our roles. And they said quite clearly, sometimes you just need to come and tell us stuff. We need to know what you know. And then there's a really different session where we chuck things on the table and we solve it. So the key is asking the team, always being in process. Then during COVID, it's very different. You, it goes into a sort of crisis management stage where there were much more regular check-ins, a lot more booked in meetings. So my hour a week went to like three hours a week with my core C suite, because you don't walk around see each other in the office. And also because you're dealing with really fast paced changes. So again, it needs to fit with the environment that you're operating in at the time.
1: Hmm. And then how did you formally interact with the company? Obviously, there's lots of little interactions here and there. But how did you sort of I'll use the word stage? How did you stage your presence? with the whole population of TBWA London?
0: I mean, if you know me, Mark, noisily and regularly. So obviously, I'm quite a, I'm quite a chatty person. Like I, I'm quite an extrovert in terms of I like checking in with people. So I would sort of be present a lot. I'm always present. But then again, it's what are the roles of engaging with people? One of them is inspiring and communicating, but the other one is listening. So we did a the standard twice yearly at Christmas time, here's the vision and here's the supporting strategy for getting there. So we would set the vision, the management team would work on the supporting strategy for delivering it. We would share that and then we would check in quarterly or, or half yearly, depending on you know how things were. And we would share finances at that as well. So that was us inspiring them, communicating them, saying this is the direction that we're going in. But listening is super important and we... Kind of slightly controversially brought in a, a regular measure for that. If you listen well with your ear to the ground, some stuff will come to you, but not everything will come to you. So we actually implemented after about a year something called Pulse, which was an anonymous agency weekly Listening mechanics. So everyone got a text, it was totally anonymous. Like we could, literally couldn't trace who, who who said what. They would get a text on a Friday saying if you had a good week or a bad week. Um, they could answer it if they wanted to, and then they could leave an open it was a space for an open question. And then those things would be amalgamated. They'd be sent to me on a Sunday over the weekend. I would look at them, and then we would talk to the management team about them every Monday morning before we had our management team status. And it was really challenging and really valuable because. We heard stuff we didn't know about, sometimes stuff, you know, bad behavior or something like that, which people hadn't raised, but also you'd just get a vibe. Like sometimes it would just be like big shout outs for the design team, they're doing amazingly or, you know, big shout outs for these newcomers that have joined. So there was like material data in there, but it also gave you a sense of stuff. What we noticed when we went into COVID was it really drew our attention to the fact that how people show up at work emotionally and how resilient they feel is affected by loads of stuff outside of work. So people were pretty drained. They found it quite hard. And that showed up and they told us about it. And it wasn't directly related to what was happening in their nine to to five or nine to six. It was a fact that we were in the middle of a global pandemic. But it was important for us to hear it. And it was really important after the murder of George Floyd as a platform for some people to hold us to account. And it precipitated another really large Workstream stream or cultural program I guess which was about the management and just trying to understand our own biases and work with the agency to explore how to make it a more diverse and inclusive place and that also had staging posts within it where we'd go back to the agency and we'd say we'd ask for their opinion and we'd also say look this is this is what we're going to do so yeah so listening building in some kind of listening mechanic is really important
1: okay okay uh, you, you've mentioned psychological safety a few times. Uh, I think one thing that some people struggle with is this sort of tension between wanting to keep a team safe or individuals safe, but also knowing that that relationship might not last, that maybe some of that team might need to move on at some point. How do you reconcile those two things that are often at loggerheads?
0: Yeah, I think one aspect of it is recognizing that psychological safety isn't just like fluffy kittens all the time. It's a balance of support and challenge. You're you're not serving anyone by just being like, yeah, everything's amazing. You're amazing if they're not, or it's not. So um, Kim Scott talks about it in her book, Radical Candor a lot. She calls that ruinous empathy, you know, when you're just like, yeah, great. Actually, what's really valuable for people is to just really know what's going on, both with their own performance, both with where the agency is. And so people need to feel underneath that that you respect them, that they're valued, and that they are cared for to the extent that you can within a sort of corporate relationship, and they're seen and heard. And then on top of that, then the nature is they want transparency. So that doesn't mean sharing everything all the time because you can sort of freak people out. But I think that that therefore that doesn't preclude being honest about the state of things. So very early on in the pandemic, we had no idea what was going to happen. Actually, we did we had a really not a bad year business wise, obviously in terms of mental health and emotionally, it was very challenging for people and actual health wise. But we grew eight percent. And out of a company of like 240 people, we only changed out four jobs. But very early on we didn't know. And I've always been quite a transparent leader. And I'm like, and I spoke to my coach. I was like, how do I show up being supportive and confident whilst The truth is, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. We'd heard reports from other markets that were further ahead, like China, the the clients come in, they slash their budgets by 25%. Everything's going on hold. And I was given a really good advice, which is be honest, but don't. Think about why you're telling people things. Don't just tell it to like get it off your back. Like think how it's going to impact them. But also just if you can't, don't promise them things you can't. You'll you'll be here forever. Everything's fine. Job security. But do just if things are uncertain, go back to what can you promise each other. So I was able to show up and say, I guarantee to you that we will take decisions really thoughtfully, and that when I can, I will share with you what I can. And from you, I ask that you, as much as you feel emotionally able to do, you really try and stay engaged with your colleagues and with your clients and with what's happening. So really just taking it down to like, what, what can we promise each other? don't overpromise and do try and be honest but there is always something that you can be transparent and open about it doesn't always have to be telling everything that everyone's that everything's rosy and in your example of the team i think a good manager if people know they trust them if people know that they're respected they can take the realities of news and sometimes that news might be bad
1: okay i got two more questions for you the first is obviously with any kind of turnaround job you are going to want to improve the creative work, right? But one of the challenges, like according to, say, Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, is one reason that companies struggle to change is because of their existing customers or existing clients. And so a way to deal with that sometimes is, first of all, what you've done or what you did, which is to state the new vision and to try to embed it in the way of working to model that behavior to measure that behavior as well around the company but then there's the day-to-day reality of perhaps clients wanting the tbwa before you joined and so that can lead to some people kind of putting existing clients not in a holding pattern but just in a servicing pattern and really focusing on pitch wins to bring in new clients with whom they can do better work how did you navigate that especially existing clients and the desire to push the the work further?
0: Mm. So it's a really great question. First of all, I'd encourage people really to look at their existing clients, because you will find that they are still incredibly ambitious for their business. And actually, maybe there are things that they would like to be getting from you that they aren't getting from you that you could do for them. So don't put them in a holding pattern, you know, really lean into them and find where there are elements within that business where they're keen for innovation or to to try something new. The next thing would be, I think it's not an all or nothing. In the old days, agency retainers were 10 years and you go into a business and you've got 30 retainers that are 10 years long. I mean, you're just a housekeeper. Now... Large proportion of agency work is project based say forty percent is going to change all the time, so it 's a great opportunity to to do new things and even the sixty percent of it that is retained was probably on average I think the average uk retainer is about two and a half years, so there 's a natural oxygen flow in a business. I think it's really important to not end up with a kind of two-tier system of like the funky new and the, you know, the paying the bills old. And I always grew up in agencies where they never allowed that to be the case. There were never cash cow clients in Mother. Every client had a strategic ambition. That ambition might be different for the level of client, but you're always ambitious for that client. And there were no accounts which were like... The shitty accounts and then the creative accounts, and so you you can't allow that to happen. There's opportunity for innovation everywhere and disruption everywhere at the level that's right for that client's for that client's business, and also there are opportunities for growth. You know, we were looking at growing the business, therefore, even with the sort of changeover of project work, we were able to go, okay, well, we we're not turning our back on the core of what we do, but we are interested in adding things on. And it's like you see within media, you know, cinema and TV are still big, but then there was radio and then there was digital. And, you know, you have really just more and more opportunities that you kind of layer on like an onion and all of those things offer you the chance to do something really, really different to, to a small extent. So you don't need to suddenly bin the whole lot and then start again. You're talking about incremental growth and incremental change over time.
1: Okay. And then as an executive coach and consultant now, if you went back, In time, you know this kind of question is going to come up. If you went back in time to talk to yourself before you accepted the TBWA CEO role, what would be the one thing that you would really want to tell that person, as in you, a few years ago?
0: Be much more curious about how people thought it was going and how they thought I was doing because feedback is a gift, right? And it's a gift that no one wants because you might not tell you what you want to know. And at the start, as I think we all are in new jobs, you're so keen to prove that you kind of come in with your ideas and you do that but actually you can just you could trot through that much quicker you know and then really get to the cool new stuff what do you think what do you think what could I be doing what could you be doing better what could this agency be doing better and that's where the real speed and the innovation comes from any kind of resting and a holding pattern of this is how we do it's slow so I would say have the confidence I wish I had the confidence to ask more for feedback on both myself and the management team and how the agency he was doing and really try and be open to listening a lot more and i don't think i was closed but i think there is no limit there's no listening too much of course you don't sway in the wind with everything everyone tells you but it's all data it's all information and there's some gold in there
1: Mm, love it i love it Thank you for letting us into your head. It's lovely going into a CEO's head, especially somebody who is empathetic and who's also worked in the strategy or slash account planning discipline. Um, what's the book you're working on? You're working on a book, right? That's coming out soon. What's it called? What's it about? I
0: know. I've I've moved from essay crisis to full dissertation crisis now, as I was like, I had th- about three weeks of chapter and now I'm like, can I knock out a chapter in like four days? It's about rebuilding and I'm writing it with my old CSO. And it was inspired by the rebuilding of the TBWA business. But also we have a really strong belief. I think probably, and in, in this comes out in how you talk about leading, that the personal qualities that are required and the rebuilding you do in your life and the understanding how to learn in the rest of your life you translate into work like we're all one person it's just we operate in different spheres so it also looks at just personal stories of rebuilding people who've recovered from alcoholism a guy who used to be a film director who went to jail and we talked to psychologists we talked to failed business owners we talked to people from Google, like all kinds of stuff. And we just go, life is a cycle of ups and downs, right? You know, it's a cycle. The planning cycle is never always going upwards. You know, it's it's sometimes there's bumps in the road, COVID was a big one, but personally and professionally, you know, the spheres are always spinning and some stuff's on the up and some stuff's not. And so understanding how to rebuild something, how to summon the energy, what are the tools, how to go about it, how to bring people with you, both personally and professionally, is what, is what we're exploring.
1: That's awesome. It's awesome. I uh, look forward to seeing that book. Good luck with writing it and, and finishing it, especially.
0: I, I know. I've got, till, I've got till Christmas.
1: Oh, great, great. It's good to have that date. Um, yeah, if people want to find you on the internet, where's the best place to look?
0: Uh, Twitter, Sarah Katie or, or LinkedIn, and you'll find everything there. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. It was lovely to, to, like I said, get inside your head and hear about the turnaround story at TBWA London. May you enjoy your executive coaching, consulting and writing career for many years to come. Sarah, I appreciate you being here today.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me. Peace.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead. <laughs>